I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Fintech founders, funders, and enthusiasts have, since the founding of the term fintech, always at least touted the democratization of finance. Now, this has meant different things in different contexts, but at its simplest, it's conjured images of opening doors to more opportunities for everyday Americans interested in building wealth and independence. But fintech on many dimensions hasn't always fit the bill. And whether you look at crypto or robo-advising or AI, it's often associated with serving narrow interests and not always those of prospective investors or users. Things are, however, changing with more engaged in what the financial venture studio has called curated fintech. In short, more firms are looking to speak more directly to the needs of a diverse clientele and array of stakeholders and see in differentiation a model for scaling. Now, of course, that kind of paradox got me thinking, and I wanted to bring that kind of perspective to the show, especially given Washington's close examination of fintech and its social utility. So I am delighted to have Tyler Griffin and Ryan Falvey, the co-founders of the Financial Venture Studio, here with me to brainstorm what this means in practice, even out West, and how the future of disruption won't just be a technical one. Tyler, Ryan, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. This kind of topic is is interesting because it really gets to uh, both the aspiration of fintech and then what's really going on on the ground. Um, I guess Tyler, I'll, I'll start with you. I mean, is is given your experience, particularly as a venture capitalist, is fintech reaching its full potential? in terms of its democratizing aspirations. I mean, uh, uh, you've been uh, at the forefront of many of these developments. What's your judgment? I think it's making a lot of progress. I don't think it's reached its full potential. Um, I don't think the industry has reached its full potential yet, and there's a lot of opportunity left. Uh, the, the companies that we're seeing are increasingly building products for in more and more specific groups of people. Um, and that, I think, is a really fascinating element of this democratization of the product, that if I'm building a bank, right, and I'm going to create this massive, you know, granite and marble structure, I need to have a lot of the people in that area working, being my customers. Um, if I only serve, you know, 3% of my population in some town, that's not going to be a very effective bank. But if I can serve 3% of the U.S. population, right, you're talking about, what, what is it, 9 million people. Um, that's a great product. And that means that I can serve a pretty narrow demographic if it's spread geographically across the entire country. And technology enables that. And more and more, we're seeing businesses become incredibly sophisticated at both developing and marketing products to these targeted groups of people. Um, sometimes those groups of people are you know, wealthy and well-positioned and all that, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're deeply disadvantaged groups. And as the technology continues to improve, the ability to do that narrow tailoring and to do it profitably because you're not having a massive expense on the back end will, I think, just continue. Um, you know, one, one quick example of this that I'll give, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to Ryan, um, is a company called Daylight, uh, which we recently invested in. It's a neobank for LGBT folks. 
And that's just a great example of something that never would have made sense to do in a physical, maybe there's a handful of geographies in this country where you could have done something like that physically. Um, but nowadays, founders can put something together tailored for that exact group, and they have access to every single person in that community in the country. That can be a really profitable business. And honestly, I think it's just getting started. So, so, so you know, I'll, I'll pick that up uh, with, with Ryan. I mean, you know, no matter where you're looking in the fintech ecosystem, you know, you hear this idea of democratization, right? I mean, you hear democratization maybe in, uh, the, you know, the, the, the trading con context, right? You know, with allowing and, and driving down perhaps commission fees for people who want to trade. Maybe you'll hear it in the world of crypto where people are talking about the democratization of, 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 of money. Uh, you know, uh, crowdfunding in terms of how uh, people can, can raise money and and to open up uh, investment opportunities for for people you have all these kinds of ideas about democratization I mean the the, the term is, is is really um uh, almost now a, a bit of a slogan but but when you think about some of these uh issues of of, more, of a more bespoke fintech that uh ultimately ryan was 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 getting at you know how does democratization fit within this question of bespoke fintech and and uh, do, do you do you view this as something that's always been a part and a mission of fintech or is this a more recent development that's a great question i think the way i think about it is i think it's at the core of what technology can do in an in incumbent industry and if you think of financial services you know ty touched on this was for the most of american history or certainly the last several hundred years, it, you know, it was a pretty simple, banking was pretty straightforward. You were very well connected already. You already had money and you got you know, a license from the government to bank to your friends in your town or city. And the best way to do that was to look like you had your act together and erect a bunch of marble on the most expensive plot of real estate and, and bank all the other wealthy people because it doesn't make a lot of sense if that's if if that's the groundwork and how we compete to bank anybody but people with money and you know over time one of the things that's you know some of that parts of that system obviously there's they're very corrupt they're very exclusionary uh, they lead to really bad you know policy and social outcomes and I think it created a dynamic, you know, that we've been taking advantage of as investors for the last decade or so to really invest in companies and founders that see that that what we that that kind of very exclusionary market has created all sorts of opportunities to extend financial services to groups of people who are not being adequately served. And that groups of people there, you know, includes most of Americans. It's not like, it's not, you know, 3%. It's like 70% of the American population is not adequately served by banks. And, and I don't think the banking industry would have done much, is going to do much to address it because they're at a structural disadvantage now to technology companies that aren't playing by those rules of, you know, dragging granite to real expensive real estate and, you know, banking their buddy who owns a car dealership down the street. They're sitting there saying, hey, there's 30 million LGBTQ people in this country. Market seems to actually be growing. Let's let's build a product that addresses their their needs. And 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 I think that that's you know that's the point I kind of tire was getting at. I think that that 
finding those observations is critical to a lot of the early investments we make. Um, to just extend, you know, that it a bit further, you know, even some of the, you know, you know, Robinhood obviously been in the news, and you know, there's there's some elements of how the company's operated that that certainly have raised some questions amongst the you know, regulators and policymakers, but it's brought a lot of people into the financial, into the financial markets who weren't there before. And the fact that, you know, some of them are, you know, jaded, I don't think should be surprising, but like they're there now. So let's really get back to this question of, of curation, because I think it really is interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's does making something more bespoke ultimately democratize a service and, and what does it really mean to make something curated, right? And I think that you had mentioned this this um, one company, Daylight, and I find that a really interesting example because very often we have ideas as to what curation could look like, but, but this is a little bit different. Maybe you can just sort of tell us a little bit about Daylight and, and what it does and sort of how does that fit into this overall conversation of curation? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I think that um, it's really important, you know, that, well, how we think about the market. So, it's one thing to say, hey, you know, X group of people is not adequately served. We should serve X group of people. Uh, the next question is, well, how? And I think with, you know, that particular business um, that is serving, you know, LGBTQ populations, um, it, that's a really diverse group of people. And they have a whole host of different needs. I mean, just the acronym. I mean, it's, it's LGBTQ plus, I mean, there's, and, and, you know, I, at the core of that is, is a really interesting demand that's placed on the company. That company is going to have to create a personalized banking experience for nearly every one of their customers, because the interests of a 40 year old gay man living in San Francisco are quite a bit different than the interests of a transgendered woman who's 23 living in Kansas city, Missouri. They might want to be approached by that financial service provider completely differently. They might have, live in completely different contexts. They might, they might view their relationship to the rest of that com- their community to be completely different to the point that like, they might not want to be, ex- be known as being part of the community. So even from delivering a card to that consumer when they get it, you know, so one person might want it in just a generic white envelope that looks like any other bank card. The other person might want it in a really flamboyant color packaging that they can really identify with. And that would require a lot of technology right there. Um, And then you think about like what people in that community want to do. Well, they, a lot of them want to spend time with other people. And that's very different than say some other, some other kind of demographically focused businesses. You know, like we've seen a lot of, you know, female focused neobanks. Women are really large group of people. <laughs> it's like half the population. It's really diverse. And I mean, is there anything particularly special where women want to spend much of their time with women they don't know? Probably not. But is that true within a population of, of LGBTQ people who might not know each other? Actually, they might want to spend some time with each other. So their ability to do organic growth and organic marketing and to come up with products that are really customized is actually quite profound. And so when we think about how a a product is curating its market, what we're really looking for is, you know, what problems is that product solving? Because it needs to solve a product. It can't just be a, a neobank for X demographic because X demographic is really complicated with a whole host of different 
financial demands in their lives. And, and it's just, it's not going to be enough. So, so, so Tyler, you know, Ryan is bringing up this really interesting observation, right? He's saying, look, you know, curation uh, is, is important because you're, you're helping to target and to solve specific problems. Uh, you can certainly, ca- and, you know, carve the world up into different groups. I mean, you know, have, you have different uh, uh, racial groups, you have different gender groups, you know, you have different uh, groups in terms of uh, sexual orientation, you know, but, but even within those groups, there's a, a lot of, of diversity and, and, and a lot of diversity of, of thought. You know, when you think about the technological challenge, right, especially as a venture capitalist trying to figure out, okay, where do you deploy capital, you know, from, from, from a business perspective, right? Like, how how exactly does then technology speak to the challenge of not just a, a better service, right? Uh, but also, as, as you had mentioned at the outset, but a, a, a better service for people with very different and, and, and demanding needs. I mean, ultimately, there's a bit of a paradox I've always seen with fintech that I found very interesting which is fintech companies, financial technology companies, neobanks, other banks, you know, there's a demand to scale quickly while at the same time this push to deliver more, as you had mentioned, sort of curated services. How do you think that through and, 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 and how in, on the ground is technology sort of working its way through to be able to sort of uh, thread that needle? Yeah, it's, it's a cool problem. I, I think there's sort of, I'll give a really high level answer and then a, a detailed answer. Like, there's always, to your point, this tension between scaling and and being able to produce sort of customized, you know, particular outcomes. The, the old joke that you could have a Ford Model T in every color you wanted as long as it was black. It's like, yeah, well, you want to scale up production of cars. Um, it really helps if you have them all in the same color. Um, so that's a, a, a totally agree. Like a general problem when you're trying to scale an industry, um, having less customization can really help. The great thing about technology, though, particularly software technology, is that it makes customization pretty darn easy, right? Like, I I don't remember when the first iPhone came out, if you could get it in different colors. I I don't think you could. I think it was all black and chrome. But hey, you could change the color of the background to whatever you, you could have a pink home screen if you wanted. You could have a blue home screen. It didn't matter, right? It's very easy to create that kind of customization in software. And that's where I think fintech in particular, and I'm happy to go, deep into fintech or, or stay at sort of the tech level, whatever you want here. But the, that's where fintech can really shine because it isn't like you can't really get much of a custom experience going into a big bank branch unless you're a high net worth customer. And, and then you're going to get in, you're going to have your wealth advisor and there's going to be some person there who's probably a good salesperson who's going to mold his or her personality to what they think your personality is. And you're going to feel like it's, it's very custom, right? That's super expensive. That's not going to work for the average person. But I can build you a software product that can scale dramatically because it's software and it costs zero dollars to distribute, but give you the ability to customize it in whatever way you want. What kind of aesthetic do you want? Okay, easy to make that customization in software. Um, What kind of spending notifications do you want? How do you budget? Like all of those things I can actually make really elegantly in software. The Obviously the challenge there becomes, and this is where we spend a lot of time on the investment side, ensuring that you're not just foisting all of the work onto the end user. Like using pretty sophisticated, in, in some cases now AI, leading up to that, it was more just sort of demographic information to try to create sort of profiles that were defaulting in the right way. But getting you something that works pretty well day one and then letting you tweak it versus, okay, welcome, dear user, spend 45 minutes 
putting all the switches and toggles in the right position. And that kind of worked earlier on in the early fintech products like Mint. Almost the appeal of them was it's super customizable. Here's all the knobs and dials, which appeal to like nerds like me. The average user is not interested in spending 45 minutes on the onboarding process. Um, and so you look at the, the, the best companies now get you up and running really quickly and they make a bunch of guesses about what you're going to want based on where you live, based on you know where you got came to to get the app, that kind of thing. Maybe some quick high-level information that they, they suck down when you start the product. And then they let you kind of tweak it and personalize it. But that, that's only going to get better. I think AI is one of the most powerful, and I'm using AI here in the very general sense of like you know machine learning. That will get better and better to make it really feel like this hyper custom like like some developer is sitting there building a product just for you um, but in fact it's just a, a bunch of guesses based on where you are yeah that's 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 super interesting and insightful i mean you know looking at ai as a, it's as its own kind of rail really for for for, for scaling right you know is so when you think about then customization and you look at the decisions that you know um, uh, smart venture capitalists are, are are making, but also founders who are who are thinking about new new businesses. I, is is this sort of curation moment that's I, I think is really just kind of starting? Is that a product of the technology um, uh, uh, primarily, or you know to, to what degree? Um, do you see social issues or even politics and, and, and financial regulation sort of creeping in? I mean, you know, uh, li- you know, I always sort of make this this joke. You know, you, when it comes to fintech, there's there's Washington D.C. You know, and then maybe the the, the West Coast and then New York, and you know, the, the West Coast makes it, New York trades it, and Washington D.C. regulates it, and they don't really like each other. You know, uh, you know, and we certainly have a perspective out here. In, in Washington about what's sort of driving many of these changes. What's, what's, what's your perspective? I think that fundamentally technology is driving a lot of these changes. And, and, and if I were to put it first, I'd say it's technology driving these changes. Um, it is easier than ever to build a really elegant consumer experience, especially given the infrastructure tools that exist, um, especially given just you know simple things like AWS or, I mean, simple for founders, really complicated on the back end. Um, so I, I think tech is driving that most. And then consumer behavior, I think, is driving a lot of, of the rest of it, you know, especially in the pandemic, we saw that. Um, the the biggest pain point for almost all of these fintech products is initial signup, right? It's just a pain. I mean, and we're doing our best to make it better, um, but it's hard. We do have to collect information about the end user. It has to be secure, it, right? It, it's it's more complicated than just downloading a game. Um, but when you can't go out and you can't go to the bank, the the incentive to just do that and and get onboarded is much higher. And then you realize as the consumer, oh, this is an amazing product. I should I should stick with it. Um, and so I think the pandemic lowered a lot of the barriers of people just signing up for this stuff in the first place. Um, so I, I think those are the two big driving forces. I, I think that the regulatory side is sort of an opposing force to some extent, which is, hey, you know, slow down. What what What's going on here? Oh, that's quite fascinating. I think that a lot of people, when they view the conversations, whether or not they be in developments like credit scoring, big data, and or machine learning would view the impetus as coming from regulation, but you're making an observation that, yeah, well, new technologies have to be created the right way, and and that regulators have to obviously ensure the safety of new services for the public, uh, and and that can slow things down. 
Uh, Ryan, when you listen to this and, and you think about the curation story, how important do you see regulation as having been? Or and, and, and do you see or do you see other kinds of drivers like technology uh, being the primary drivers? And if it is technology, what do you see as some of the biggest stumbling blocks coming down the pike? So yeah, you know, I I I I think you know Tyler and I have you know probably slightly different shades of gray here on this, on this view. Um, I. I'm not sure that the regulatory environment, I, I think it's probably helped fintech quite a bit, actually. Um, we have a very unique market here in the United States, kind of post-Dodd-Frank, where the largest incumbents are both unable and kind of unwilling to respond to the rise of a bunch of new entrants into the space. And there's, you know, there's a bunch of kind of vagarities within Dodd-Frank that have created, you know, entirely new markets now. I mean, the, the chimes and the neobanks, the debit cards, I mean, which we, we, we are big fans of and have invested a number of them, Daylight is one of those, are, are enabled by, by the fact that we have a, you know, a, a legal environment in this country around interchange that, that is, makes, it, makes, it for small, makes it more lucrative for small players and large players. Um, I, I think that this is going to continue, and I don't, I don't really see any signs of it slowing down. I mean, the, the one area where there there is, you know, probably where I think the change has probably been more favorable for fintechs is just around data access. You know, I mean, earlier in our careers, we, we spent a lot of time working on that and how you know consumers could access the data that was in in the incumbent bank. Um, you know, for the most part, a strategy of you know the the delay strategy that that I think we kind of settled on as an industry, both for banks and for fintechs, has worked out very favorably for fintech companies. Because at this point, you know, the cat's out of the bag. I mean, when you, Wells Fargo going to come subpoena my data back to me? I mean, I mean it's, it's over. And so I, it's, it's, it's allowed a lot of these companies to come along. And you know, I'm, not, I'm not seeing a lot else that's going to that's gonna come and really impair, impair fintech. If anything, we're still making investments in many cases, they're based on the assumption of regulatory action that would favor new income. So we have we invest in a company called called Fairplay recently, which eliminates which works to eliminate algorithmic bias and lending decisions and the marketing around those lending decisions, um, and that it basically does a fairness analysis on, on on when someone makes a loan. And it turns out that most lenders' lending algorithms are surprise, surprise biased and unfair. And so they go and look at it and say, hey, this is, this is you know, an unfair algorithm. This is how you could fix it. And if you reanalyze this borrower, you'd approve them. And it's not, these aren't people who would, who would otherwise not get access to credit. They're people who should get access to credit and are paying more for that credit than a white male in most cases. And so, you know, we invest in that. That's a problem that's been going on for a long time. But when you're looking at the, you know, the current administration, Clearly, they're really focused on many of these civil rights issues. They're focused on leveling the playing field within financial services, and so you know, I think the fact that you did have a change in administration gave us a lot of a lot of motivation to invest in that company because you know we can see the writing on the wall too. Um, so yeah, I, I think we take a very kind of nuanced view on on some of these regulatory regulatory and legal issues because I mean they really do they can cut both ways. So when I hear this, I'm always curious and interested in getting into the minds of venture capitalists working through the issues. Uh, does this mean that folks are 
are trying to think through regulation as opening doors to a reg tech play, or is there a changing demographic story, a, a post-George Floyd world uh, where the new social environment is, is a major driver? Or is it just, again, a technology story where there are new ways to do well and there's just a nice overlap that there hasn't necessarily been before? Yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's. I think there's probably two parts to that answer. One, um, one, just on the regulatory side. You know, we, you know, we have an kind of a unique model. Reinvest in our companies, and then we spend, you know, about six months trying to systematically connect them to the broader financial services ecosystem. And, and one of those connections that we focus on is the regulatory and policy community in Washington D.C. So, prior to COVID, we would put all our founders on a plane, we'd fly to D.C. and go meet all the regulators. Um, now we do a Zoom call, um, which isn't isn't quite as lively, uh, unfortunately. Um, but um, but it still kind of gets the point across because I, I think what's one of the weird one of the interesting paradoxes about a fintech company talking to regulators is that these are all, for the most part, unregulated businesses. And at the seed stage where we operate, it's really the only time you can go sit down with one of these regulars and they're excited to meet you because it's, it's innovative. It's, it's the spirit of American entrepreneurialism. It's energetic. And they're like excited to hear it. Even by the series B, when companies have typically raised, you know, 30 or $40 million, they're kind of just unregulated rapacious capitalists that I'm a little weary of. And so you can get a lot of credibility by going in early and sitting down and saying, hey, this is my motivation. So I'm trying to do this, what I'm working on. And then, you know, regulators remember that you know, years later when you, when you do need something or you are working. And so we do encourage our founders to spend a lot of time on that space, especially if they are in a place where they could end up becoming kind of regu- regulated. I think to your second question around kind of the broader uh, you know, societal issues, um, certainly you know, more of companies spend more time you know, talking about those, the, those, those types of issues as, as we've seen kind of across, you know, industry. Uh, but one thing that's been really interesting that we've observed, you know, for years now, for the most part, the, you know, we do a lot of consumer investing and small business. The market you are serving with a, with a fintech startup is, is younger. It's more diverse and it's, it's less coastal. Than, than like where incumbents are. If you like, if you took cities' footprint of consumers and small businesses, it would be in cities, big ones like on the coasts. Um, but if you know, we have a company called you know, Dave.com, which is about to go public via SPAC, which helps people avoid overdrafts. You know, they have a they have a town in Texas where about a quarter of the population is using this app, and it's all over the country. And so when they started building it, they realized that their users were much more brown and black than, than their own team. They were younger. They were more female. I mean, they're just, they're a much, they, they represent kind of the future of the country. And so smart founders very quickly realize that they need to get smarter about serving, serving their customers and they figure out how to bring those resources to the table. And so yeah, it's been, I think it's been far less reactive in FinTech and especially FinTechs to serve those customers um, than it has with some of the incumbents. Tyler, Ryan, really interesting conversation. Thanks so much for joining the show. Of course, thank you. Thanks for having us. FinTech is for sure beset by its own internal contradictions, perhaps most notably the task of scaling while finding bespoke solutions for a very diverse array of consumers and stakeholders in the innovation economy. 
Now, how firms are navigating that paradox is highly interesting, with many firms leveraging new technologies or regulatory developments to upgrade their business models and seek out unaddressed or underaddressed markets. Now, from the outside looking in, this creates an exciting opportunity for people who have been long ignored by traditional financial services. The trick, of course, is to actually open opportunities and not to inadvertently end up funneling curated customers into products that create unexpected risks. So when you see fintech starting to develop in directions where there's early contact with regulators, just as they take on the work of curation, you can't help but think there really might be a way to chew gum while walking. Time will tell. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer, DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.